Namaste, motherfuckers, and welcome to Tantric Conversation, episode number 27, Scott Hudgens. I've known Scott for, for years, but um, I, don't, I think we've only managed to have small talk type conversations previously, and it was really fun to sit down with him and talk about all kinds of shit, Richmond stuff and bands and history and the Civil War and Confederate flaggers. She spent a little time on in the beginning because it was relevant to the moment. Um, Scott's been in some amazing bands. Uh, Brainflower one is one I remember from early college days, but one of the most significant was Slang Louse, which is, if you don't know, is a really unique Richmond project with um, Andrew, fucking can't remember Andrew's last name, but we'll hear it, and Ron Dimmick, Scott, and fuck me if I can remember who the drummer was right now, I got a lot on my mind, actually, don't know why all of a sudden, but uh, it's been a busy week, and I'm coming to the end of this two-week house-sitting gig at my parents' house, taking care of their cats, and uh, just kind of hanging out at the ancest- <laughs> ancestral manse. That would have been cooler if I hadn't stumbled over it. Stately pain manor, as we like to call it. Um, it's been good, hanging out here at my parents' house. I'm... I wanted to get a hold of some more Churchill people while I was up here, but it didn't work out. Except I do have Chuck Wren lined up tomorrow. Rockin' Daddy, Chuck Wren, CW, founder of High on the Hog, which if they were still doing it, the Churchill Association, the Churchill Porch Club was still doing it, would be this coming weekend, October 10th. Um, of course, now style does it last weekend, but the original gangsta high on the hog thing that would have happened this next weekend, and I thought it would be really cool to talk to Chuck, and Chuck is a really significant presence in, in this neighborhood, Churchill, when I was growing up, and uh, I got a lot of stuff to ask him, he's a real cool guy, um, so that's, I'm doing that tomorrow, um, this weekend we're, I'm going up to orange again and we're getting a bunch of the uh, old punchline crew together um at least the ones that abby (coughs) was able to uh get in contact with and it's uh it's gonna be interesting i might try to record something up there if i can but i'm gonna go up and spend the night outside in a tent in the mountains right it's about the time it could be tolerable just cold enough to get real cozy in a tent other you know, whole summer, too hot, too many bugs, can do it. But this is prime time. Well, uh, it's it's been talk about prime time, man. I have been having a blast. I things are going great. Um, I'm about as happy as I can be. And uh, today I was I was just getting off work and going to the gym, and uh, I was listening to my iPod on shuffle and some reason for whom the bell tolls came on Metallica and James Hetfield told me to look to the sky just before I die and it turned out to be one of the most beautiful sunsets I'd seen in a long time I can't even call it a sunset because the whole sky was just like purple cotton candy it was beautiful but <laughs> at that moment the, the perverse 
cynical part of me thought, maybe I will die because I'm so happy right now. I'm about as up as I get, and I love Richmond in the fall, and I really love being back here from Minnesota. It's, um, as I mentioned before, it's kind of like Br'er Rabbit back in the Briar Patch, the place that spawned in may not be good for everybody, might stick some people, might uh, be thorny for others, but for Br'er Rabbit, aka me, it's a nice comfy fit, and I love being in Richmond, and I love just getting to know it in this different way. My perspective has changed a whole lot on all these people and that I used to know or barely knew or had ideas about, and I'm really enjoying getting to know them. Scott and I had a great talk, and it's just kind of amazing to me what a, a presence he's been in so many bands, but I was so into whatever it was I was doing, I didn't even realize it uh, half the time. But I get to find out now by talking to him. And you get to find out. And uh, I am going to stop talking now. But before I do, I want to give a shout-out to Groans Monet. You know what's up, don't you? This is our my first time recording at my parents' house. So oh, good. We'll pick up some... Um, it's a nice some of that, Yeah historical vibe from this house this house is an antebellum greek revival which means you know do you know what that means um i know what the antebellum means yeah. what does it mean um it Impress is the kids. That, uh post civil war pre it's pre civil war okay mm-hmm. that's right it was built before the civil war and it, it survived the uh the fire set by the actual Confederates as they left town. That's right. You're not going to use this. <laughs> well, that's a common war practice too. You destroy mm-hmm. so that the people who are winning or coming in are not going to have resources right. left over, left behind. It makes yeah. perfect sense. Yeah. 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 It's not just, um, what's the word we're looking for? Uh, spiteful. It's also, no, it's <laughs> not. It's tactical. It's absolutely yes, it's very tactical. tactical. And, um, we're right next to Chimborazo park right Pretty playground much. is right over here and then the park okay. is on is a couple blocks the park was the world's largest uh medical field hospital wow when it was existent um that must have been really really horrible because it's big yeah medicine at that time was there was no anesthesia no anesthesia uh, what no penicillin antibiotics like it was rough it was yeah, medieval Word on the street is that most people who, a vast majority of people who died in the Civil War died from infection. I'm sure. It and makes the, perfect sense. Yeah. The ministrations of medicine mm-hmm. at that time, the and sawbones. The, uh, um, inaccuracy and bluntness of the bullets and things too, just yeah. like causing much more damaging wounds. Those, ca- those cannonballs ripping across the field. Yeah. Just, ooh, take a I, the, the Civil War, I mean, I guess we're, we, I've been, talking about it lately because you know that flag that yes that's gone up the virginia flaggers yeah what what do you think about that um hmm cut to the chase and say they have the free speech to do it right is it in good taste or is it well thought out or is it supported by the community i'd have to say no in all those counts yeah that 
that seems to be the major sticking point to me is that we're going to have somebody decide, a, a group of people decide the first thing that people passing through this town see about us and it doesn't represent what the rest, you know, the majority of people yeah, absolutely feel. Not. I mean, and it's just recently occurred to me, I've always heard that argument that the, that the Confederate flag, whatever its nickname is or whatever, it, it, it represents some kind of, you know, besides the, Slavery in mm-hmm. the Confederacy that it's, it's our, it's emblematic of our heritage as Southerners. But I, I've recently said, why doesn't the American flag, which we both, we, we decided was the country's flag at the end of that conflict, why doesn't that represent all of the same things? I think you it know? does. It yeah. certainly should. But as I understand it, these guys, these flaggers, they've, they've, they've kind of moved from Boulevard where the museum is and right. the, um, Daughters of the Confederacy, right, and the chapel there, yeah. and before the renovations on um, the MFA started, they were able to fly the Confederate flag at their events at the chapel because, right, you know, that was where the last daughter of the Confederacy resided and died and behind the chapel in the uh, home for needy Confederate women, which mm-hmm. is now part of the museum. Yeah, but that's also right. state property. Yeah, so the museum in that process, because um, they didn't really have access for two years or more to that chapel because of construction. Uh-huh. They kind of, when they reopened, they were just like, no, we're not going to let you do that anymore. I mean, it's just, it's offensive. I don't know if they said that. The state said that you The state or right. the VMFA, but I think right. it's probably VMFA. Which is has to express the state. I mean, it's... It, it does. And they also, you know, this was a huge renovation, mm-hmm. if, if you've been there. Yeah. And um, you want to be inviting. And yeah. it's open to all people and it's a place of culture and like education and it has no, it has no place. It's not political at all. Yeah. And I think I was involved at the museum in food service over the years and was aware of what various directors and most recently, I don't remember who, what the guy's name was who was there really during the major construction, but he was very, um, vocal and very mindful about this is the state's museum the majority of the money that supports it is state money mm-hmm. um though actually i think that huge thing was a private grant that paid for the uh i couldn't say all i know that is that they had the money in place before before Governor the McDonald. state started having problems, yeah, for <laughs> yeah, for the the whole economic before collapse McDonald and, was the governor, and before I mean, McDonald, because he you know was would be a person who would come in and cut funding to right. the arts basically. But yeah, I mean, I was working in the uh, cafe there, the arts cafe, when it, during construction, and and they weren't they were closed an extra day out of the week because of funding, and that was back in like two thousand six or seven, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, I. I used to work in the members dining room up there even. That's uh it's pretty cool. It's an interesting place, but that was there was a sense when that existed when it was the members dining room that it was somehow exclusive like that these that the wealthier old money people in oh. Virginia had some more ownership to the Virginia Museum than than the than the average uh you know state yeah resident who pays taxes and supports it and hmm so it's important. I mean and that's I think I think the thing about all tax-funded stuff that people get mixed up. The state or the federal government is not necessarily censoring something. They're saying it can't offend the people who are paying for it. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. And it's, it's, it can't be, you know, this is another example of what is people are trying to make a point by being polarizing in, in politics in general. We're seeing it today is the first day of the shutdown. Right. It's, I mean, it's, it's the same tactic. Nasty and, business. and, 
Sorry? Nasty business. Nasty business. And then, so I say this like whole Virginia flagger on the highway thing is like a sort of a last stab at trying to have some legitimacy mm-hmm. towards their cause. Yeah. Which I think, you know, you just gotta give it up. What Nobody the fuck cares. Is the cause? To, to fly the Confederate flag at a chapel. Well, what do you think really <laughs> motivates that need? Like, what are they? <laughs> oh, it's desperation. It's, it's like someone drowning and, and just, they know they're drowning and the only person is, that can help them is the person they've been subjugating mm-hmm. their entire lives and, you know, in various ways. So, and that person's not going to reach out and help. You yeah. Know, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. My take on it is that for, I mean, and I'm, I'm because of various, and we'll get into talking about this, you know, choices I've made about who I align myself with culturally, whether mm-hmm. it's, you know, the VCU art and music scene, you yes. know, or, or some, some other kind of esoteric fringe kind of a thing. Some of what motivates me has in the past when I was younger, uh, was a feeling of being somehow not accepted or threatened by more prevailing kinds of culture, you know, the, the mainstream or mm-hmm. whatever that was going on, whether it's Richmond's mainstream or my high school's mainstream or whatever. And that's what this really seems to be about to me is that those people feel like the world is moving on. And they don't have a place in it and that, yes. that there are active forces trying to say that they're no longer welcome in America and in the South. Instead of saying, hey, America is just changing to actually embrace everyone that lives here. You know, it's mm-hmm. not, it's always been a mixture of cultures and races and creeds and whatever. But for some reason, one culture got the dominant voice for a really long time. But just it, in order to lower that voice doesn't mean that it goes away. You know, you still get to have some. Right. And at, at the end of the day, and for the flaggers, I would say they have the right to just go out there and look like idiots, but they're kind of doing it in a way that makes us all look that way. Yeah. And, um, but I think you're absolutely right. These are desperate people that are feeling very marginalized and they're just going out there and doing ridiculous things and, or like Westboro, mm-hmm. the Westboro mm-hmm. Baptist Church. I think it's, they're, yeah. they're very much like, that's their tactic too. And they are, they are actively, uh, you know, against some stuff. And, and I think at least the Confederate, the flaggers are just trying to be for the flag. You know, they don't, I don't hear them saying they're against anything. They're just trying no, to, the, you know, you're right. That's true. They're just trying to fly something, you know, whatever that represents to They them. don't want to be and, forgotten. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. And my, you know, my friend, this is an interesting, there was an interesting thread on my, um, Facebook page because I just asked the question about doesn't the American flag cover what the Confederate flag covers? And a bunch of people started talking and somebody brought up like something about Malcolm X and which I will say Malcolm X, you know, he recanted a lot of his. He did. Stuff, That's very you know? important to understand. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he really, he became someone who said I was wrong. I, it's not yeah. that simple, you know, if you, when you read his autobiography, when you get to the end and he's, you know, gone through this massive growth and discovery Spiritual and leadership, awakening. you know, and, and then breaking off from the nation of Islam and, and forming his own group i don't know if you call it a church or not but right. uh um ministry ministry and and then you know he goes to mecca finally and when he lands there he sees that there are all these different types of of people who are are the true nation of islam i guess mm-hmm. and they're from indonesia the they're asian they're african they're from you know they're saudi mm-hmm. and everybody i mean to speak about a complex or non-organized religion but you yeah. know it 
it showed diversity to him, and that's when he came back to America. And that that was going to be his platform, pretty much, was that yeah. everybody can be a part of this, and and the sort of things that were you know racially dividing that Polarizing. came from yeah that came from uh, Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam. He just wouldn't, you know, he was changed, but yeah. then he's gone down. So they really, I mean, supposedly they rejected him, you know, yes. and they may have killed him. We don't really. They may have killed him. The government may have killed him. Yeah. You know, um, I can't imagine it being any other two people, but, you know. So whenever people bring that up, you know, you wear your exile, wear mine thing, you know, he's somebody who did, you know, he relinquished, but he put, somebody mentioned that on my page and coincidentally or ironically, or whatever you want to call it. One of my friends is Jamal Kareem. And Jamal is the son of Benjamin Kareem, who was one of Malcolm X's ministers oh. back in the day. And Jamal grew up in Richmond and went to Open High and, mm-hmm. you know, now lives in Atlanta and sells, uh, Oriental rugs or something. But he commented on all this stuff and is in, well, that's in, important in is Islam. You need a rug, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for, for right. prayer. Sorry. Right. And I don't <laughs> know if he's a practicing Muslim or not, but he made a really good point on there that what it really represents is that the, the, a certain level of, or a certain class of the South, a certain culture in the South can't stand the fact that they lost and they just yeah. don't want to admit that they lost and they can't let go of that. And he says black people is collateral damage in that particular battle that it's really about pride, pride, not in, in pride and heritage, but pride in saying, I can't say that I lost. You know, oh like, well, that's always been the case, hasn't it? Yeah, isn't it always like that's even really what we mean by being, Southern pride? <laughs> yeah, being taught about the Civil War growing up in South. I'm from Virginia, and you never get that kind of apology from the education side of it. But then again, like they didn't teach us about Vietnam or anything right. like that. Like they don't. They literally, it's just too hot to talk about. Yeah, in public school or in private school. And again, public school is also this taxpayer-funded thing. Yes, it's like it's very touchy to bring up certain things. You don't want anybody complaining. You don't want anybody getting the school board involved and big mess. And but he, you know, the last thing he said, you know, it's just about rebellion, and that—that's the most American hmm. thing you can uh, be as a rebel. And uh, I was like that. You know, without making it about race or anything like that. It's just about the losing side still wanting to say, you know, you didn't win. Right. You know, how we're the punks time? in I'm, this. Yeah, exactly. Almost, like, right. Right. Yeah. The upstarts. And, uh, that does, cut, I think that really does get to the heart of like what it is, why it's important to those folks. They still want to rebel against what they think is the prevailing mainstream change in American culture and that it somehow threatens them. You know, I can agree with that. Yeah. There's- it's, I mean, we've, we've had it through entertainment, uses the kind of Smokey and the Bandit and Dukes of Hazard. Like, right. it's kind of been hammered in, you know, is you can sell people this. Yeah. But it's you a know, whole brand. Yeah. It's a brand. Right. Pretty much. Yeah. It comes with great, but a great logo. It's great logo and good <laughs> <Very> cooking. <recognizable>. Yeah. <laughs> but it doesn't represent it. I mean, what it, I mean, and lots of people own it different ways. And I mean, to, but the thing that is, I think is really important for all of us who are Southerners, remember that we are Southerners, you know, that you yeah. came up in this, how, did you grow up in Richmond? Oh, uh, no, Newport News, but oh, yeah. I just pretty much landed out of high school in Richmond, so. But, how was growing up in Newport News? Um, hmm. Let's just it's go beautiful. Get into you, uh, it's, you know, it's the river down there is gorgeous. Uh, there's great parks. As a kid, it's, it's awesome to like bike everywhere and all, but I think once you hit adolescence and you, you're immersed in kind of, commercial culture like you realize what a desert military, is industrial complex yeah yeah that's <laughs> another thing like you you definitely look across the river and you see 
the nuclear power plant on Surrey glowing and you know there's a shipyard down there and there's, you know, Langley and just everything's military. And, and because of that, it, there's a lot of transient culture. People don't put down roots there. So it kind of just, it would, it felt like looking back now is like, oh, this is where the box culture of, of comes in, the, the malls and the Walmarts and that kind of crap. And, uh, you, you realize how being, you know, an artistic person and finding culture there is like really, really difficult mm-hmm. for me. So like a landmark event would be I was, uh, at the train station for some reason and I found a copy of Maximum Rock and Roll. And that was just like, holy cow, what the hell is it's going like a on in a out there? It <laughs> is. It is. And that, you know, in the, that day and age, you would be like, trading tapes through the mail and you you could find some really great weirdo music even though it's a you know kind of a sealed document of punk rock and mm-hmm. hardcore but there there was stuff in there that was like definitely left of the doll it was, so. it's a broader umbrella than it yeah it, it it's it had yeah exactly it's not as cliche as it, it could be seen mm-hmm. and um so given that that area is like that um, you either dive in and just be as normal as possible or you just run away screaming, right. which I think pretty much everybody from that area that and, I know. And does. Richmond was a, a mecca compared to Oh, uh, absolutely. Newport yeah. News. I'd, I'd been to Richmond once, came to see the Bad Brains and, uh, that was a pretty amazing experience. And I knew right then and there, I was like, I'm, I'm coming up here and mm-hmm. I'm going to go to VCU and just tell my parents that I submitted applications to all these other colleges that were much better but uh that was pretty much it were you playing music already um yeah i was banging away on the guitar and uh making tapes that was a big thing i'd like make tapes and then i had multiple boom boxes and would play one and then record on the other one you did your multi-track yeah exactly it was was like i didn't even know about les paul at that point but that's pretty much what he invented and uh then i played with my good friend troy um, I had a, a goth band in high school really? too. Yeah. That was with, uh, two other guys and a drum machine. At that point, what was goth? Susie and the Banshees? And the- oh, definitely Susie. Definitely the cure. Christian death mm-hmm. was also, they were the, they were like, okay, you're serious about this, that first record. And then of course, um, Virgin prunes who are kind of a super oddball band from Never Ireland. They're, um, they're great. Um, Let's see. Gavin fact, Friday. Tell me, wait, tell me a little bit about Christian Death too, because I'm oh, yeah. enough to be like, yeah, I know what's up, but not. I never really got into them. They they have a complicated history, but the first album, Only Theater of Pain, is like the one. Like that's all you need. But that's because they had a certain singer. I'm gonna, I get their names mixed up, so I'm not even going to try to go there. But they had this one particular singer who later just kind of ran away and did heroin or whatever, mm-hmm. and then they had. A guitarist who is in, I want to say like the Avengers. He's in like a totally solid LA hardcore band. Right. So the, the band was really, really tight. And they, that sounds like the darkest David Bowie record ever made in mm-hmm. a way. Like, and it, the lyrics are just scathingly anti-Christian and, um, very androgynous sexuality. And so like, no matter what you thought about anything, they got you on some point. Like, this is ultimately very creepy music but it rocks it yeah. absolutely rocks i was gonna say that about like you know the cure you you look at robert smith and you can and you get the the 
maybe the superficial imp- impression that he's a milk toast or something. But the guy's <laughs> a, a rocking guitar player. I mm-hmm. mean, he's a, he totally kicks ass. Oh, absolutely. You know? Cause he was in the Banshees after their guitarist was kicked out. And that's, uh, uh, John McGosh, who's one of the best post-punk guitarists of all time in my, in my book. And so he, to fill those shoes was just huge. Mm-hmm. But if you listen to the live record, um, I forget what it's called, but it came out after Hyena and, uh, Robert Smith's playing on that and he just like nails the parts. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. So, so um, you were talking about the prunes. Yeah. Virgin prunes. Uh, Gavin Friday's a singer. He went on to actually do some duets with Bono because Bono and the edge and the Virgin prune guys all hung out in high school and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And, uh, actually one so of the, the Virgin mem- prunes are from Ireland. Yeah. They're from mm-hmm. Ireland. And, uh, one of the, guitarist i think in the prunes is the edge's brother which is kind of interesting so uh they actually have songs about or at least one about you two after they got big uh-huh. and that was like about, a diss song um it's it's a it's a playful it's a very playful uh kind of ribbing uh-huh. and it's uh when you two are making their second album october bono is on the way to the studio and uh he had his notebook of lyrics i guess he was working on him or whatever and then when he got to the studio, he realized he left him on the bus. Oh, shit. So I guess to his credit or whatever, you know, he figured it out and rewrote him or he found the notebook. Who knows? But the Virgin Prunes had a chorus and that was like a crazy singer in a band that's lost their words, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So, and that was like real post-punk primitive music. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty, pretty primal. They were definitely like throwing mud. And mm-hmm. trees on stage and stuff like that. And what drew you to, uh, the goth kind of thing at oh. being in a band and that was wow. a, a negative fascination, no. <laughs> but still uh, wanting to rock, I guess, right? Uh, sorry, but like, still wanting to rock. And- yeah. Um, cause it did rock mm-hmm. and it was so different. And then that would be so the eighties was so glossy and perfect and shiny shaped and like, there had no rough edges to it where this music did and was deliberately rough and mm-hmm. would like provoke, but not needlessly. So, you mm-hmm. know, it, it, it just wanted to kind of see how you felt about things really. Mm-hmm. I think more than anything. Was it a little bit of a fascination with the macabre kind oh, of? Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Cause, uh, the first time, <laughs> the probably the first time I listened to heresy, it's a double 10 inch disc from that was put out a label in France and it's, beautiful box set and all the imagery is like nuns half naked nuns and graves and just stuff like that and uh that record is so dark i like was sitting on my parents enclosed porch where the turntable was in the house and uh listening to it late on a friday night or something and being like i'm going to hell (laughs) Uh, this is the the most demonic thing i've ever heard Mm -hmm. yeah and this is while metal was still pretty tame i would have to say I, my what what a little I like, I mean I always had an I always liked the Cure and yeah, um, it's hard hard not to like the Cure I think they write great songs yeah yeah really and, and and when I was a hair metal guy I think Kiss Me Kiss Me Kiss Me came out and I saw no disconnect because there was some serious guitar I mean that's what I liked about yeah metal I mean I'm a guitar fan I'm a guitar riff lover and and you know guitar solos and whatever and that record opens with this big spiraling like guitar jam you're right i haven't listened to it in years but you're absolutely right 
and yeah, uh, he's screaming and, and you know yelling through the. So I don't know if it's Robert Smith playing it or the or somebody else in the band. But. It they had a consistent lineup, mm-hmm. so it, it could who knows. Was he a lead? Was he the lead guitar player in that band, or was he? I think he was more backup. Yeah. He's more rhythm, but he'll play leads. And his, I mean, I think he played the, a lot of the leads because they're so signature. Yeah, like they're just these melodic. Kind of up and down the neck, nothing too complicated. Yeah, honestly. wah pedal and effects. Yeah, and like really, he's almost like a, a proto. I mean, a Jay Mascus like soul brother, kind of. You know. Oh yeah, well they didn't they cover the Cure? Didn't they Dennis, did? Didn't they? Yeah, just like Heaven. That's right. And that makes perfect sense. Yeah. I've never. Heard, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that. I've never that. thought of it like that before this moment. You know. Yeah. The the mope, but the mope who's like really like on the got a maelstrom that he's trying to get out you know we can we'll turn up the amps and do it with a guitar but like yeah. really isn't confrontational with people otherwise no you know? no it's not but what i liked also was about the goth kind of thing is it you know i mean i the darkness of it the macabre aspect of it was still kind of it was romantic you know it's like kind of there's an aesthetic a, a sensual aesthetic to it you know girls liked it you know, yeah like Different that's kinds very of important. Girls, you know? <laughs> yeah, fun, cool girls that smoked cigarettes behind the school in high school, you mm-hmm. know, and and like you know they they seem to be like you know, not have knowledge of something other than the uh, Doris Day types, mm. you know. Big thing that drew me to it, you know, like that goth stuff and new wave stuff was really for me about hanging out with girls. I mean, I I mean I liked it and I related to it. I wasn't doing it just for them. Yeah, but yeah. I seriously associated it with. I mean, it's sexy stuff. You know, oh, absolutely. On its own level. And, yeah. and music should sometimes definitely be that. Always. Oh, yeah. Not always, <laughs> but yeah. Oh, wow. What's the unsexiest music in the world? So, uh, <laughs> that, your first band was a goth band? Or was that uh, it's major? kind of multiple things going on at once. We'd go and do the Inferior Rot stuff, which was just like real basic In Fear of Rot. We named ourselves Fear after a Bauhaus rot. song, okay. you know, which, um, was a lot of fun and just was like ended up being like a cassette that we would give people. But my friend Troy and I were a lot busier and, uh, we did a lot of music in Newport News. And when I came back from college and like holidays, I would just like go over his house and record. And that became like the basis of what was become Eeyore, mm. which is a band not a lot of people know about maybe in Richmond, but, um, when what was the epic? The era for Eeyore. Eeyore I, I guess when we were in high school, so like 85, and then by, then they, he kept doing it, kind of traveled around to Troy Fisella. Troy Fisella. Yeah. Um, he lived in Richmond in the early 90s, and he, he just kind of all of a sudden, like, oh, here, we've made all these tapes, and there would be like this song that we would do and he would made, he'd made up these names for the bands and stuff, but it would still be the same people and, um, got on the tape circuit and compilation circuit. And then pretty soon he was in touch with enough people that were making music that he started. He and Mark Sahlheimer started Eerie Materials and Eerie Materials became a kind of a Richmond label in the early nineties that, uh, Put out a lot of tapes and then a lot of seven inches and then finally CDs and, uh, some, yeah, full length albums too. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I think it's all the music's largely really held up to date. Mm-hmm. Like I, I listened to one of the era records like two months ago and I was just like really pleased with it. 
But, what did Eeyore sound like? Eeyore was a, you never knew you were getting kind of a childish version of the butthole surfers. And so it was like taking the spirit of punk really to heart. And What made like, it childish? Oh, well, Troy, his his language, he's made a lot of wordplay. Uh-huh. And there's a lot of outrageous sort of uh, dressing and... Um, one tour, we threw stuffed animals at people mm-hmm. and uh, things like that. So um, that that was a theme, like childhood. A little bit, uh, yeah, it did. It definitely spoke to, tried to speak to people's spirit in a way. Yeah, and then sometimes it was political as well. But um I'm trying to think of the big, the big singles they did. They did a Evolution Controls Committee single um, that was kind of notorious. NBC got it shut down it was called uh rocked by rape which is pretty offensive <laughs> but basically Whoa. what the guy evolution control committee did i know i kind of shifted the subject there sorry but uh it's important he had taken every negative word from a dan rather's like news uh-huh. from i don't know how long but then he made a rap out of it where it's just all these negative words he's like just like and the the end you know chorus was to the acdc song um Oh, anyway, it doesn't matter. But, uh, Dirty Deeds Done Dirty Deeds. I don't know if it was that. <laughs> I, don't know. I can't think of what it was. But, uh, and it was rocked by rape. Mm. So it was, it was pretty offensive, but it made a point, like, because mm-hmm. of all the other words in it, there's like mountains of cocaine. What is this crazy. evolution control committee? They're kind of defunct. They were, they were kind of blew up in the underground way in the nineties for all the like plunder phonics and stolen appropriated. Uh, tape collage, but getting into computers. I'm sure mm-hmm. he was like one of the early pre-PC computer users. So, and uh, what is how is Eeyore connected? They put out those those guys' records and stuff so. through Eerie Materials. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Oh man, what's up with that? <laughs> um, I had big phone problems in this house all week, and it turns out it was my doing. Oh. <laughs> I messed up the DSL line. You don't. Um, so, okay, so Eeyore is like late 80s? Uh, late 80s, or more early 90s. We did two tours, and that was kind of funny because it was the silliest project I was involved with, but in a way it was the most organized. Mm-hmm. And we actually like um, did two, two and a week, two and a half week tours, a couple of different summers, and they were largely, I guess they were largely successful. It was the first like really outing with a band I was in. So I learned a lot and got to play with just some really incredible bands. Like I am kind of baffled, not baffled, but pretty marvel at the memory of yeah. like we got to open for Royal Trucks in oh, wow. Pittsburgh and we played multiple shows with Sockeye who are kind of notorious retard punks from Ohio, Ohio mm-hmm. and are are still great to this day. Um, you know, Tony's from Municipal Waste, a huge mm-hmm. fan of Sockeye. Um, things like that. It's just like looking back, like I kind of like playing with the Royal Trucks at the time was kind of like, all right, I like you guys. I love Pussy Galore, but kind of didn't know what to make of them because they were starting to sort of make their career off of ripping off other people, which mm-hmm. is 
what a lot of musicians do. Yeah. But, uh, but maybe more brazenly in their, yeah, they did. They, they, they brazenly ripped off our friends who are Carolina. Uh Carolina are, are a San Francisco, totally crazy psychedelic, um, sort of like the 1980s on acid uh-huh. kind of band. And uh, they their first or second record, Twin Infinitives, Royal Trucks record, was just like they had taken the blueprint from Carolina, which was really, really unique and just made it their own. And then they never made another record like that. But at the time, it was sort of like, I don't want to make you guys. And I actually asked them at the show. I was like, you know, does anybody ever say your record sounds a lot like Carolina? Uh-huh. And, I, and Neil's like, huh, yeah. Yeah, because he was probably stoned out of his mind, but he admitted it. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so that that was what was it that you liked the most about like touring and like getting out there that like mm. bit you? You know, the chaos, chaos and freedom, and and doing it with friends. That was the other really like that makes it so easy and mm-hmm. uh, like also kind of being part of a, a gang. Your, your group of people. And when you roll up, no matter whether you're big tough guys or just scrawny weirdos, uh, you have some effect. You have a posse. A, yeah. yeah you're, it's your posse. It's mm-hmm. like, and every people, you know, they have your back too, mm-hmm. which is really, really important. And, yeah. Uh, I've experienced that too. I, and I think that was my favorite thing about being in a band. I was like, now I'm not a lone wolf. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, even uh, right or wrong, these guys have my back. <laughs> yeah. Ian Segovius in his new book, like, um, supernatural rock and roll group, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. He, he talks about how the rock and roll group is the evolution of the gang. Yeah. That would like protect your people or protect your neighborhood or mm-hmm. whatever it was back then before rock and roll was a thing. What is that thing? It's like Ronin. Yeah. The, 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 the wandering, the uh, Japanese. Yeah. He's the samurai without, without a master, master right? right? Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I, it's, a, it's a, I, I I guess the the traveling in a band thing it's so much like yeah you're that you're that that ho- that gang of uh dudes coming in town on a horse or coming in on a motorcycle or mm-hmm. whatever and you get to just kind of roll in and live in this temporary context Very too, temporary. where you get to just be whoever it is you want to be you don't have to live real life with these people you yep. know even if your your interaction with people extends past the show and that night you're still just in this you know passing through you know? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, there's certain circumstances where you know you want to return. So, yeah. You know, you, you do the Boy Scout thing and leave things better than when you got there. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, the campsite rule. It's good that you're aware of that because I I was messing around with guys that were you know acted like that that wasn't going to play you know carry over next time. You mm. know, how you behaved or how you acted towards a promoter and stuff like that. I mean, you've got to. You have to, and yeah. you know, when you're young, you don't think about the future of relationships in that way mm-hmm. I and mean, you're a little bit more likely to barn burn your way through stuff right. but i think at a certain point you realize okay this guy got me this gig at this medium sized venue that is pretty cool but it's not the cooler one that's down the street and maybe they can help you out later on yeah and it's it's just kind of common sense that you, you want to build something and, and work with them again if you have a good experience mm-hmm. yeah it's you know it's i think when i was younger i I saw being mindful of that kind of thing as being manipulative and now I, I recognize it as you no know, that's the way of the world that you you have to be aware of uh not just can this guy do something for me later mm-hmm. but it's like have respect for the system that you want to benefit from you have to do your yeah. part to support it and not destroy it not fuck it up if you want it to work you know for you and for <laughs> other people like 
you know, that's like you're saying about nature, you know, being a Boy Scout, leave it better than you. Yeah. Leave nothing but footprints and, and mixtapes. <laughs> mixtapes. <laughs> and and t-shirts. T-shirts, so, right. Oh, uh, yeah, but you, did, you don't always realize it and, you know, might not, it might not hit everybody in the group too. So you have to kind of like, mm, if you see someone kind of, Maybe not doing something that's gonna, that's gonna leave a bad image behind. Just like, hey dude, just don't do that. So when I was in college at VCU, I remember you, uh, being a guy that I saw places at shows. Like, I was starting to get my feet wet going to punk shows and I was drawn to things like the butthole surfers mm-hmm. and our, our local expressions of that, like guar and, you know, that, that spirit anyway. And, uh. Calcan. The, yeah, and, yeah, and all the, the so-called math rock instrumental mm-hmm. and whatever. And I remember you being associated with a group that I don't know who dubbed you guys this, but was the industrial. Yeah. Do, is that a real thing or is that something? not from us? We uh-huh. were dusty girl, you know, some girls around town were like, there's, there's the dusty guys or whatever. But I think it was the music that we were into. I think, you know, really deeply into like, Einsters and De Neubaut, and, uh-huh. and not me personally, like a little bit of Test Department, and even stuff like Death in June. Again, kind of gothy, but mm-hmm. um, music that wasn't really out to proclaim its desire to entertain you right. or give Be you pleasure. Be pleasing. Yeah, and, and it, it became entertaining in a completely different way if you're right. open to it. But um, I think that and... We, there was a group Coppermouth that I did here, uh, in the first two years in Richmond. And I was with Andrew Sigler, who's, yeah. um, the singer of Slanglaus and Frank, oh, yeah. Frank Pickle. And we would, we literally used, and it's just completely inspired by these industrial groups like scrap metal and percussion and chanting and like, I had a guitar with four strings mm-hmm. and stuff like that, just doing everything wrong. And now that I think about it, like, I forgot about those industrial bands, like, I mean, th- there's something like Z- Zymos or does that ring a bell? Clan of Zymox? Zymox. Zymox. Is that right? There's a kind of 4AD band called Clan of Zymox, but they might have been called Zymox Some too. girl that I had in English class at VCU who was a goth industrial girl gave me some tapes. And, uh, so th- and that was like a proto noise electronica kind of a thing I remember. Mm-hmm. As industrial is meaning that to me. Like it was like, it was about noise and about like, I don't yeah. know, deconstruction and, and using what, what, uh, synthetic sounds were available then or synthesized sounds. That sounds really. about right for them. But then there was also the sort of like the big black into like, uh, shellac. Yeah. And that Chicago and that touch and go kind of industrial sort of, I mean, that, that I feel like they were considered or would you not agree with that? Well, I don't think I particularly thought of Big Black or, you know, as that, but they had the same intensity. Yeah. They had, you had the same rhythmic drive and shrill, shrill guitar. And then the lyrics would be these first person point of view, really screwed up, mm-hmm. you know, twisted stories and for Big Black in particular. Um, so in that sense, yeah, they, they do fit it, but it was just sonically, it was like they still fit. The rock and roll side of it. Mm-hmm. They still were just like drum machine, bass, guitar, vocals, and song structure. You think that about Big Black? Cause when I, you know, yeah. I, I feel like this soul of rock and roll is almost completely missing from what they're, 
like as in the rhythm and blues blues based roots of I, it that it's something it's somehow going in a different yeah i agree uh, with the, with you there um i think that uh they kind of took the groove out and just mm-hmm. made it bludgeoning yeah. it sounds like so it sounds like metal on metal like mm-hmm. this crazy trebly guitar sound and those drum machines were terrible overdriven yeah you know horrific sound roland but awesome yeah you know and that and that so that sound really sounded like a, some kind of a plant you know like so that's what made me think of indu- them being industrial also yeah, you mentioned it like the whole the ways in which they were confrontational and it's like this isn't really going to entertain you um yeah it's it's definitely coming from the same attitude so in, why do you suppose grown. those girls dubbed you and it was like Jim, I think, was one of the people, like, and Ron Dimmick. Jim, Ron, Randy, um, Scott Miner, uh, what do you think? Rob Guest, Andrew. I remember you all in extremely tight black pants and Doc Martens or some kinds of No boots. Doc Martens. There were some kind Maybe, of Maybe, well, though. Randy had some. There might have been a couple of pair, but there was really. a uniform of sorts. I yeah, there was. I, we, uh, I think, um, a couple of us really loved Psychic TV and I think that, some of the, ba- the the industrial bands uniform was kind of part of it. It was sort mm-hmm. of like a way of being like we're this and we're nothing else but this. Uh, this is, this is our uniform, pretty right. much. And uh, I think it particularly you're still we were still really young yeah. in our twenties, right. early twenties, and and finding our own identities and and everyone managed to do that somehow and uh it's funny to think about that now because we thought of ourselves as such adults at mm-hmm. that point yeah and yeah. i remember thinking of you guys as being fairly like serious and almost dour like kind of <laughs> we were somber guys <laughs> and another thing for the uniform we were broke so uh-huh. you just bought wore the same clothes yeah all the you wore the same clothes along. <laughs> uh <laughs> we were but i think not at our hearts um and I think maybe just kind of the goth weirdo thing. You feel like you're you're kind of against the world. You're not really trying to play the game, right? The way life is sold to you in stories and television and movies as you're growing up. And we knew that and we're going to do something different. And mm-hmm. uh, and everyone certainly has, you know, which is really. Were you perfect. in Slang Louse at any mm-hmm. point? Yeah. Absolutely, Were the entire in- time. Right. Okay. So maybe it's like no, I was the f- invisible guy because you're actually not the first person who's ever said that, and I was like the first person who ever said this. Like they fucking with me. Were you playing guitar in that band or bass? Guitar. You're playing, playing guitar. guitar? Yeah. And Ron Dimmick was the other guitar. Other guitar player. Yeah. And who played bass? Uh, Randy Dugan was the first bass player from 1990, our first show, until I think 93 or maybe yeah, probably about 93. That's hard to pin down. I asked him recently, and he couldn't remember. Um, and you then Mark, visible, but you weren't like Andrew and Ron were. Oh, like, yeah, they were the the most out there, kinetic, um, physically into it. I think I was. I mean, I know I was like pretty introverted, and uh, but I was also really, really concentrating on the songs. It was really yeah. hard to play sometimes, yeah. and I didn't have like the. I don't even know what it is to this day, but what, what relaxes you on the stage? Uh huh. Uh, besides alcohol besides yeah yeah which may not work if you're trying to play something no no right. that's not a good thing um but i think i 
I just wanted to be kind of invisible. Yeah. Sort of like. You were up there to play the music. Yeah. Live. You weren't there to put on a show. Exactly. And, right. and I'm not going to compete with those two. Right. For that, on that level. Like, I've never yeah. seen anything like Andrew. Uh, yeah. I mean, he was like a yeah. big, like, uh, like a seven foot tall co- King Cobra he, or something like. He was uh, the lizard king. Yeah, <laughs> the real lizard king. Oh, man, yeah. Reptilian he, as hell, like, just, and moving in all of these odd directions and sort of spastically and... It was like, unpredictable. Yeah. It's, it had nothing to do with the music. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't... Re- <laughs> it wasn't synced. No, no. Yeah. He's... What an incredible experience to, have, like, have him be the singer of the band. Mm-hmm. Like, really on lyric level voice just his person who he is and um and everything that he contributed is it's immeasurable mm-hmm. um, how did slang louse come to be um very unintentionally uh sort of the last days of brain flower men which was ron's ron todd Whitteman and, and sean harris sean harris sometimes uh-huh. jim chandler i think uh-huh. but anyway um, we shared the same practice space and most of those guys lived there in this old warehouse kind of near DMV drive. Um, and, uh, so when we weren't doing Brainflower stuff, whoever was around would just play and we were just really getting into like the heavy music of the time. I mean, there was all the Richmond music. Mm-hmm. The Melvin's first record was incredibly. Um, impressive on everyone. Yeah, well, I played Ozma for my friend in Chicago, and yeah. he said this band ought to be given the key to the city of Richmond. Yeah, like <laughs> it could be. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Ozma and Gluey Porch got worshipped mm-hmm. here for sure, and uh, there was just nothing like it. Yeah, and I think there was still some the the some of the punk metal crossover hadn't really happened yet for a lot of people on a personal level, and, and uh, just kind of and again, you're you're broke. It's not the internet. And I, this is what I love about this, this music, the early mm-hmm. days of Laos is that you had to have someone hand you something. Yeah. You had to go and work and be able to buy it. And if you wanted to buy it, you had to find it. Yeah. So that's a whole different story. But we had things like Plan Nine, which were great for that, but right. you're broke all the time. So you, people sat around and listened to the same record because only one person listened, like owned it. Yeah. And you get that awesome connection with that music to the people who turned you on to it, the mm-hmm. scene, like all of this stuff that's a built in aesthetic, it charges it for you. Cause that's the drawback is, yeah, you can find all kinds of shit, you know, and I can read this and I can listen to sound opinions and I can listen to, you know, Jim Derogatis and all of these other people talking about stuff, but it's just like the card catalog at the library. Yeah. You it's know, not very it exciting after a while. Right. It doesn't connect me to that music and like having to find it. Um, because you met somebody you thought was cool and you just went down a rabbit hole and you wound up like the first time I heard Breadwinner, we were drinking at a house on Cary Street and we went across the street to where like I think Penn and Chris were either living next to what was the original Chop Suey books. Yeah, like, I know exactly what you're talking about. And we went in there and they had a flat, nearly flat keg they were drinking That's and they were horrible. sharing with us. Yeah. And they were listening to some of their early like tapes. Oh, I'm thinking when they played there. That's what I thought you were going there. They actually, well, they did. probably yeah. This they, particular time, yeah. they were just hanging out. The two of them were listening to shit they recorded. Wow. And their attitude about what they recorded was laughter. You know, they were like, they were <laughs> yeah. laughing every time they switched a riff and did something like that. It was almost like it was a, they were pulling a prank, prank after mm-hmm. prank, and like that association of like that moment and like just happening into that room and hearing that and all of that made that something that I don't think it would be if somebody just said, this is 
you should check this out. It's brilliant. And I go find it on the internet and listen to it, yeah. you know? So, but, uh, anyway, so there's this kind of gray area where we'd be playing a lot. And then brain flyer came to a sort of sudden, but sort of understandable end, just, just ended. And then we had a whole summer and by September we had, kind of assembled these songs. Do we need to go back and talk about Brainflower before we go any further? I don't know. Maybe, because I, no one can hear it. It's not out there. So it's, I mean, it will be, but I vague, I, I don't remember Brainflower other than thinking that was a really cool name. And like, I think you guys were on bills that we, uh, we played some really great bills. Like, yeah. Um, Swans. Yeah. Uh, was incredible and, and just mind blowing to me because I listened to them in high school and then, um, God, who else? There's another really major one. Our first show was to open, it was an offer to open for Roland S. Howard of the birthday party. Mm -hmm. And we were too scared to do it. We didn't have our shit together and we knew it. But, you know, that was just like, what a way to kickstart something to someone at that age. Yeah. Like 18, 19. And when you've been listening to the birthday party for years and then Roland S. Howard is, is the records on SST, which again, huge thing for richmond what does brain flower sound like i mean i i remember associating it with the like the brown acid like the bad side of psychedelic or <laughs> a little bit like yeah it was real psychedelic of- we had some really some melodic songs some really like kind of bruising slow temples tempo songs kind of very swans influenced and uh and some just straight up pop at the same time um and, and who was in that band? That was Scott Miner, myself on guitar, Scott Miner and drums, uh, John, uh, on guitar, Randy Dugan on bass, John Piper, sorry. John Piper. And John Piper. I don't, I don't know where he is. I haven't talked to him in years. I can't even bring a face up right now. Is he related to Andrew Piper? No. Totally different. No, totally different. Totally different. Hmm. John. Played guitar with Scott Minor in the Hard Ride while he's his last days here living in Richmond. But you are totally plugged in here. Like from is this from Eeyore and and from uh I don't know how that happened. <laughs> I I think once after Brainflower got started and we started having popular shows and um and tapes sold at Plan Nine and whatnot, we we just got in somehow and mm-hmm. like like alternatives would have us open mm-hmm. for and stuff like yeah. that. So. You know, at, at that point, just slow, there was a nice vibrancy to Richmond. There's a nice organic vibrancy. And a lot of people weren't scared to share bill, bills that were bands that were like really different than right. them. And it was kind of more welcome in a way. Yeah, it was a great spirit. Yeah, it really, it was really fantastic. And, um, so I think a lot of relationships and trust got built. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. okay, these guys aren't fuck ups. They'll mm-hmm. be able to do the show fine. This guy's cool. Yeah. He's going to take playing the music seriously enough to stand still and play the song (laughs) (laughs) and and try to be invisible. So you were playing, you were practicing in proximity to another band as in Brainflower. What was that other band? That was Men. 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 And then you guys got together. Just more. Chocolate and peanut butter. Yeah. And like the people who wanted to get out kind of got out and Mm -hmm. the people who wanted to stay in stayed in. We we had this uh, story in the Brainflower days and we had actually had all these leftover flyers from a, actually I think it was an alternative show and we were just bored drinking beer at the kitchen table and just started cutting up the letters and rearranging them we came up with Chang Shen and I think we came up with Slang Laos too at the same time uh-huh. but the story became that 
Chang Shin was this horrible, like, Indonesian promoter who would, like, kidnap young boys and force them to be in these, like, boy groups, pop bands, uh-huh. and, like, inflict them on the world. He's like the Kim Fowley of, like, uh... Yeah, I guess something uh-huh. like that. And, and then Slang Louse, I think, was the name of the boy band. Mm. So when we... <laughs> yeah, so we've been playing and playing, and it really turned into songs, because we were just, you know, you're, again, you're broke. What do you do? Play music if you have right. the gear. And, uh... You can't even get the gear if you're broke. No, no. no, you can't. You can still beg and borrow, which, yeah. which happened. But uh, a show offer came up. I think like Mark, who did uh, Metro, whatever, tw- Metro, mm-hmm. yeah, and later Twisters. Twisters. Mm-hmm. He had some bill, and I think we just kind of said, "Oh, we'll just make a band for this," and then realized we really wanted to keep doing it. And that shit was crazy awesome. Took too. it in earnest. It, what is it? And I had a tape, I think, and there was also a song on what was it, Dixie Flatline or New Dominion? That New Dominion, we had a track on there. I think yeah. Legion's on there, and we had a single through um, Tenderizer Records, which was Lisa Nader. Oh, really? Yeah, that's Lisa Nader and um, Clara Ashby. I'm trying to get a Lisa. Kind of the Merge Records camp. Person. Yeah. Huh? And is that's weird? Like, was she, you know, she's. I guess you, of course, know that she wrote a book. I do. Um, I follow her on the internet. Yes, Facebook. Mm-hmm. She's very active. Yes, and Twitter. She's I want to get Twitter. her. I want to. I'm about ready to drive up to DC to talk to her because she's a really interesting. I think she's trying to get a Fountain Bookstore event going. She did mention that. Yeah, uh, and I asked her if we could maybe do it when she came into town. I oh, that would be awesome. Yeah, you should totally do that. So she had a label, huh? What, what did you just say? It's Tenderizer Records, Tenderizer, and they put huh? out Slang Louse, Keypone, uh, Biorhythmo. I don't think they did any full lengths or any CDs, but these are all seven yeah. inches. And there, there might have been some, though, they did cassettes. So they did one of the early Pan American cassettes. Did they I do think. a Ladyfinger? I don't know if she they was did. in that. Band. She was in Ladyfinger. Holy shit. And there's demos of that out there and there's some YouTube videos. Um, that was good. They were oh. great. I mean, it's again, it's like that evolution of mm-hmm. the breadwinner, butter glove, Ladyfinger thing that happened. So, yeah. So Slang Louse, uh, put out stuff with that and you, by the way i just want to ask do you have a copy of that new dominion cd anywhere i i do i think in an archive i have this one cardboard box that's the archive the archive yeah I had, unplayed I copies that thing it had some really great shit on it yeah it had terrible artwork though very very bad. I, I i that was just such a point of contention with everybody we were like really you're gonna do this, but just a shitty picture of terrible. the state of Virginia. Yeah, with like a star, or I think where Richmond was. It's, I think Texas did that first. But there was awesome music on that. It, there really Daniel was. Red on that, and yep. Mm-hmm. I think Maybe there might be sour song, some Aurora paralysis on there. Too, yes, which is kind of tied it. into the Eeyore crew. Oh in, yeah, in a little way. Francis was in on a lot of the Eeyore stuff as well. So, so how long did you guys manage to do Slang Louse? I don't remember. Um, the... I count it from our first show it was September 1990, and we kind of imploded in like May of 97, I think. Mm. That's yeah. a long time. It was a long time. Seven yeah. years? Yeah. Shit. And um, Andrew moved to New York yep. around then, right? Yeah. He and Heather moved up there, mm-hmm. and Ron kind of drifted around Richmond, and he's living somewhere in New York now, too. Yeah. And Got all up in the Mama Zoo yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Too. Mm-hmm. Was, we won't go into all of that. No. And uh, so, LeBradford. Yeah. You, let's talk about LeBradford. Let's. Here. Okay. Fantastic. So, give, 
I was a Philistine when it came to stuff like that at that time. Like I needed it to be like I was listening to Jesus Lizard, I think, and mm-hmm. like I and the Melvins. I needed everything to just be like hitting me over the head with guitar, bass, and drums. Yeah. And I and I I knew that people I respected like Le Bradford and I I knew that there were cool people in it, but I didn't really listen to it, but I remember people saying ambient around it. Yeah, yeah, fair, fair enough. I think, you know, it's, it's beatless music mm-hmm. for the most part. They later kind of, as technology changed, brought in things that would make it more rhythmic, but mm-hmm. never like super rhythmic. There were no drums? No drums. Really, it started as Mark Nelson on guitar and Carter Brown with all his like banks of crazy synthesizers and keyboards. Um, and so, but it was a very, hmm, introspective music. That mm-hmm. they made. Meditative? Meditative. Maybe? Yeah, absolutely. And it was very pretty at times as, as, as it was also noisy at times. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I remember this one great show and this was when Bobby Donnie was playing on bass. Um, mm-hmm. he joined on like the second record, I think. And it's a hole in the wall and everybody's kind of sitting down and standing around and they're playing and it, every, the whole building's kind of rumbling with whatever mm-hmm. like note they were holding down. And, uh, you remember how there's that front row was like just kind of a cushion, uh, uh-huh. uh, seat pointed with not yeah. into a table, but just pointed to the stage. Yeah. And right in front of it from the ceiling, a light bulb had just vibrated loose from its socket and just smashed down nice. in front of the people there. That's like smart. that was, that was like, yeah, that's the Bradford guys. Yeah. I would love something like that now. You know, that's Danger. Totally the mic- rock and mic- roll. Like, yeah. That that intensity and that tension of rock and roll can happen without percussion. Mm-hmm. That it, and it's it's kind of like well you know that band Earth you know they became yeah. somebody I really appreciated later that it was like no there were no nothing but I guess two a guitar and a bass and mostly feedback and like layers of just kind of you know sonic dissonance and consonance and yeah whatever and um and I and, and I was able to hear at, at some point I cracked that got the Rosetta Stone in my brain. For hearing that, oh, this is, th- is just a different way of saying the stuff that I, yeah. Yeah, it's music that exists on a different rhythmic, um, time zone or something. It mm-hmm. just like takes so long to evolve. It's mm-hmm. so molassesy too that you get lost between wherever the ones are. And, uh huh. Yeah. I think Melvin's clearly did Very that. Very good at it. Yes. You I know. agree with you 100%. The first yeah. time I heard, uh, I think the, fr- one of the, the first things I heard by them was out of like, uh, the linear progression of their records was like the King Buzzo solo record, mm-hmm. which just has this drum intro that instead of going in, you know, as you would expect after maybe a couple of measures or something into the song, it just keeps going. Yeah. You know, just this, this building drum thing. And, and I remember thinking at the time, you know, all of a sudden I forget where I lost my bearings. You know, because it didn't do what I was expecting it to do to kick in, you which know? is and then great. it does kick in right after you've gotten used to the drums, you know, the tribal drumming. He's whatever. a trickster. Yeah, watch out with that guy. <laughs> and that's the thing that I I really love about all of the the math, the so-called math yeah. stuff, is that you know the what the way people talk about it often is that that there was all of this plotting and graphing that went in, you know, that it's that that's the thinking behind it that it's mm-hmm. about. Um, something, you know, not organic that it's about something, you know, math implies that it's formulaic and there's, and they're do you know, that this is based on 
really knowing time signatures and intentionally talking in those terms when you're writing the songs. But my sense of the people that were playing it was more that they were trying to say things differently. They, you know, mm-hmm. were trying to, you know, to alter the paradigm a little bit. And it was a very much like a, you know, creating a different language uh, from people who initially were speaking the same language and had the same intent. And then, you know. Yeah, completely. It's kind of like local slang. Yes. Almost. And you, you know, you're slang loud. Yeah, no, you're ripping. <laughs> you, you could take, but I mean, sometimes it was for, I can say for us, like, we really did, you know, pay attention to the time signatures and you would be counting on right. some of it, but, or I would, I can't speak for anyone else. But mm-hmm. then we also set it up with the drums and samples and stuff. So that helped you kind of keep with it. But other times it would be just like, if she's so make a, write a riff and then we would start practicing it and then someone would say, Hey, let's take this note out. And then it would completely change the feel of it. Yeah. And it was something as simple as that. And no one had ever bothered to like figure out what it was. Right. You know, we just knew what it was by ear and played mm-hmm. it. Yeah. So that sometimes I think it, it's probably a little of both for most of the Richmond math, math bands, but, uh, yeah. It, it, I, math is just really not, maybe it isn't exactly the right thing to do, you know. It's a confluence of different things. Cause mm-hmm. I think everybody, metals started getting really good mm-hmm. then and you had so much explosion in metal and it was definitely affecting the Richmond. It was getting really complex. Yes. Too. Yeah. Like yeah. cynic things were really interesting all mm-hmm. of a sudden. I would say like cynic and death and, um, you know, of course Slayer mm-hmm. and, um, you know, those, they were like, okay, something's finally happening here. You know, where like the last great metal record was Metallica or something. Like, yeah. Maybe, maybe. And, th- you know, I loved them for, you know, from, eight, you know, the early eighties up to about 90. Mm-hmm. You know, and what I really loved about them was it, essentially it's like, it's a, it's a classical music approach mm-hmm. that there's like, this is a composition. It's not just a verse, chorus, verse, rock song. You know, even though they would operate in that, but then they would hand you, okay, there's this piece, this part, and then it goes into this and this, and it's really dramatic and tense and not dramatic in that drama right. kind of way, but, but really r- ramping up the, uh, intensity. And I, I mean, like, I just love that, that there would be waves and waves of stuff coming at you. Yeah. You know? I agree. Um, I, I kind of loved them just cause they ripped, but, you know, when they, they covered Killing Joke and Misfits, and it was mm-hmm. like right then and there, I mean, two really big bands to me at the time. Yeah. Just like, you know about this and you will put it on a record. Like, there's something going on that's, there's really more different. to those guys than a period. Yeah. yeah. The, the Garage Days shit was, you know, great. fucking awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I still can listen to that. It's like a desert island. Yeah. To me. Helpless. It's just that song. Like, I can listen to that over oh, and over wow. again. I need to hear it again. But, uh, so what do you, La Bradford, what, how long did that, uh, I think La Bradford, well, La Bradford, wasn't they? Hmm. Let me think. They launched Cranky Records, which I think. Just well, you were in Labradford, right? No, you no. weren't. Oh no. my God! I'm I so played E and E, my other electronic thing. Mm-hmm. We, I did shows with Labradford, which was fantastic. Where did I get that idea? That's oh. Um, I think I don't know. I was wrong. <laughs> I was neighbors with Mark. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they really did something super unique. I mm-hmm. mean, they both worked at Plan Nine. They were the record collectors and right. Carter like I knew Carter my first year in the dorms and we really hit it off and just 
back and forth with like turning each other on to music and he's um just a massive brain of music in particular like prog rock and early craft mm-hmm. work and um all the kind of german stuff from the 70s mm-hmm. um can annoy can annoy mm-hmm. yep absolutely and uh he knew his keyboards and he had played in high school with andrew from slang louse in some band that was sort of less very weird doors-esque band um that had some tunes, but uh, I what were you doing that was concurrent with that? Like, with LeBradford? Yeah. Um, I think Slang Louse was pretty much happening at mm-hmm. that point. Yeah. And what did you do after Slang Louse? Um, I didn't do anything for a long time guitar wise. I just was focusing on my electronic stuff. Um, and I kind of, I kind of didn't want to play guitar. Honestly, mm-hmm. it was sort of like after I didn't know what would possibly be better than that at the time yeah but uh i think without the group it didn't make sense it was like i wouldn't be able to find the same caliber of of musicians Mm -hmm. or minds that Uh could create some kind of monster like that and but then uh i guess 97 till about 2000 or 99 actually seth harris from uh honor roll and Butterglove, Butterglove he played mm-hmm. on the first Keepin record, and he's Sean's brother, the drummer, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and um, and he had gotten me to come play guitar on the first Keepin record, which I think was that was way early, so Glouse was still going, but he had got me to kind of get out of my shell and start playing with him and a guy named Greg Laboud, and Greg had been in a really great band with Tim Harris, Keepin, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, called Hoi Polloi that uh-huh. I really loved. So it kind of was like, all right, perfect recipe was, I can't say no to playing with Seth and knew mm-hmm. Greg. I didn't know Greg at all, mm-hmm. but I knew I loved his playing. And then it was, it's just kind of a hob, weekend hobby kind of group. And we were called, eventually we were called Dead in the Water because we were never going to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> we played like two shows at the Hole in the Wall. But I, I really loved, um, Playing with those guys, I mean, Seth to this day is like one of Richmond's best drummers. Mm-hmm. Um, you can just hear is he it. He's still the around here. He is. It's it's been a while since I've been in touch mm-hmm. with him, but he's a very taciturn and, and not a very social person. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. whatever he's up to, I hope he's doing well. And um, it was great. They got me playing guitar and writing, and then before I knew it, um, Tulsa Drone needed a guitar or a bass player, and I went over there. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. This is what I'm mixing together. My head is Tulsa Drone and La Bradford. Oh, yeah. Okay. We stole from Drone. Them. You can see how I might make these yes, associations in my addled brain. So uh, tell me about Tulsa Drone a little bit. Though we are, we might have to do a, well, fuck it. It's tantric conversation. Let's keep yeah. rolling. We're at an hour. So okay. Well, if you would like do. to pause and go to the bathroom, you may, listener. No, let's keep, let's keep going. Or, yeah, John Goldberg has been really, he's, he's wanting, he's talking to me about, uh, inserting a, something at the half hour mark for Little House Green Grocery. This is just like, so long, man. <laughs> like, that's why I call it tantric conversation. It's long. Get an attention span, everyone. Yes. Please. So Tulsa Drone. Tulsa Drone was started with Eric Grotz and Peter Neff and Peter Neff playing the bass hammer dulcimer. And Eric was, of course, on guitar. And they did that for a while. And then they got Jim Thompson to come in on drums and did that for a while. And then they got Seth 
Harris again mm-hmm. uh, to come in and play bass, and then he wasn't able to do it, and I stepped in. And then, so were you playing? You were playing bass. Yeah, playing bass. So it's just this is where I get me. the idea that you play bass. Yeah, also. probably yeah. so. I I kind of forget myself sometimes. And uh, we did one record, one CD, and we put it out ourselves um, on Dry County Records. And really proud of that. I play guitar on one of the songs though, um, Vendetta. And uh, we did that for a little while, and then I think our buddy Jim Chandler kind of called and said, "Hey." I'm tired of Portland and we were like, want to come to Richmond and be mm-hmm. a bass player? Cause he had done that before and, uh, he did. And then I moved over to second guitar and then we made our second record, uh, Mean Season. What would you say Tulsa Drone sounded like or, or if you had to describe? I've, um, it's hard to describe. I don't know. I've always described it as sort of, um, soundtrack music, mm-hmm. you know, and, if that didn't mean anything to someone, I'd just like exaggerate and say spaghetti western, you know, yeah. Morricone. Right. And usually by that point, people understood or had some, they walked away or had some idea. I don't mm-hmm. know which. But, uh, th- yeah, that's how I pretty much would describe it. That's funny. Before you even said those words, that's exactly what I was thinking that the Morricone and the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Kind yeah. Of which was, it was a genuine influence. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all love that stuff. We would, um, I don't know. It's just it's, it, you put that on almost instead of like party music. Or something. Yeah. 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 Well, it's that kind of thing is cool too because it doesn't. Uh, it without the narrative, it doesn't dominate. Mm-hmm. In some ways, it enhances. You know, and it can be. You can pay attention to it and really focus on it and meditate, sort of on what's going on. Yeah. Or, you know, or or it can be something that's like a soundtrack to other things that are happening. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Definitely. Oh, wow. I like Boards of Canada for that a whole lot, right? You know, I've kind of rediscovered them. Yeah, recently. what's your favorite boards? I'm, I'm curious. This is Geo Gaddy? Me too. Geo Gaddy? However you pronounce that shit. Yeah, most people say the first full length, uh, music has the right children, but mm-hmm. I think Geo, Geo Dottie's more interesting. It's less plotting in a way, and it just takes a long time to get going. Mm-hmm. But once it hits that song, 1969 in the Sunshine, mm-hmm. you're like, okay, we're here. We've arrived. And all that beginning part is just totally different music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it, yeah, it really, it does hang together. And those guys have a really great sense of, of playing around with aesthetics and creating moods and emotions and feelings. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it gets me on all of these different levels. Uh, and I don't know the songs by name, even though they, they're constantly coming up on my, my iPod or my iPhone really likes Boards of Canada, and there's a lot on my phone. <laughs> so every time I get in the car and plug it in, I'm. What's the one that goes "Beautiful Place"? You know, is that's sort of like this ch- girl's voice yeah. sort of in the background. I think it, it might be called "Beautiful Place." Yeah, there's all of this. Um, it's it's like melancholy, but it's also fanciful, and I mean, it's a, to me a beautiful combination of beautiful, a pretty. And happy, upbeat kind of mm-hmm. sense, but also very rooted in something you don't, are you sh- not quite sure what's going on? It might be sinister. Yeah, slightly. a little sinister. <laughs> it's a, a nostalgia or like mm-hmm. things changing kind of, yeah, you know, like nothing's permanent and everything's kind of gauzy in, in a way. Hearing Leslie Nielsen's voice uh, so from some educational record talking about a deep water crew going down to look at volcanoes. Is that him? Yeah. 
Wow. The time for a dive is always a tense time. Yeah, that's Nuzzy Nielsen. From you got me. That is great. I've yeah. never noticed that, even though I know exactly what you're talking about. Take you back to sitting in a classroom in like the 70s yeah. or 80s and, and watching some film like that and being in the dark there and feeling like basically safe, you know, mm-hmm. like you're a kid, you don't really have major worries, but starting to get the idea that there's other there's some, stuff. There out might there. be something wrong here. Yeah. You might need to be worried. This might need to watch your back. <laughs> it looks kind of old. The film's a little broken. Mm-hmm. Maybe this isn't up to date. You know, mm-hmm. like, I'm not. You, it, it calls in a sense of trust at a certain point. You, you know, yeah, security. You yeah. know, and trusted security. And like that's the thing that I think I I miss about childhood the most. Although I really didn't experience that living in this neighborhood, the feeling mm-hmm. of safety. You know, because I wasn't safe really in this neighborhood. I mean, Let's I got real. My, yeah. You know, it was a real. It was a ghetto basically. Mm-hmm. You know, there were. Some there were pockets of civilization in there. I remember in the early '90s coming up here to do stuff with Rob and Andrew. That was basically early Laos programming kind mm-hmm. of stuff, and it was very scary to be here for me. Yeah, yeah, and that yeah. was real. You yeah. Know? yeah, there was shit going on, and I mean, it very it, the shooting aspect of it was much much later. Um, you know, but there was ass whippings and theft and intimidation and in whatever and, and so but that you know when you were talking about goth earlier i was thinking about it. what you know started to draw me to that was that there there was a an an embracing of that fact that life isn't all um these hearts and flowers and and safety you know safe yeah. places and whatever but that but that the only response to it was really to embrace it and to say that i i appreciate this aesthetic too you know yeah, that it's it can be sexy and it can be appealing and all of that kind of stuff. Because my other choice is to be frightened by it, you know, or turned off by it or scared of it. You know, I just said frightened, same thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah I'm, I'm, where's Canada? There's they always have that kind of darkness, and I haven't heard the new record, but the, what the song that's a single, I guess, was very dark to mm-hmm. me. What I heard, I've um, got all of it on my. I, I, well, I stole all of their catalog <laughs> off of. That's okay. I'm okay. I won't feel too bad about and that. That third album it is not very good. Yeah, I don't like it. There's yeah. one that looks like they look like a poor, like a poor Daft Punk. Um, I think that's it. And they put guitar on it, mm-hmm. which is not very doesn't add a thing. No, I don't know. If, there's one tune I think is okay with the that has acoustic guitar or something. Yeah, there is like one, but it's it's so painful to listen to for me. But what else is like that that's good? Like uh that, that is there anything else remote as Boards of Canada really there's Oh, so Um there's a guy, I think he's out of Japan and I've been listening to him for a couple of years. It's called Sun Glitters. Mm-hmm. And it's a, he's mostly playing guitar and then doing kind of really kind of Lopey beats, but they're, and they're really pleasant, pleasant melodies. He has a lot of free tunes and stuff on Bandcamp. Um, but he's really kind of taken the boards with Canada thing and run with it. Mm-hmm. And, um, then there's sometimes there's vocals on it. It's usually like vocal loops and mm-hmm. pitched up or pitched down and stuff, whatever. It's, which is pretty trendy right now. And, mm-hmm. but, but sounds great. Auto tuny anyway. type stuff. A little mm-hmm. bit, just more like, um, hmm. Can't think of a good example. Uh, I think Burial has had a massive impact on how bedroom musicians are making music mm-hmm. and, and like using these snippet vocal loops 
is is everybody's kind of gotten a little bit of that, which is fun. But um, but I'd highly recommend Sun Glitters okay. to you. Um, and then of course Black Moth Super Rainbow. I don't know if you've heard any. No, of that. I haven't. Um, I mean, really, Boards of Canada is like oh uh, wow. I know like that's like that because it's not really been my milieu. In fact, I kind of was against it because mm-hmm. uh, I went this to- the total eating potatoes like you know riff rock yeah. for yeah. a long time and I've mellowed. You, you had enough meat and potatoes and need to have something else. Yeah, I need I need some more sophisticated. I need a souffle every now and then. I can't just <laughs> eat grilled cheese all the time. Yeah. But uh Black Moth had to like actually shed their Boards of Canada mantle at certain mm-hmm. points, but they make really again, well, it's vocal based for the most part, keyboard and there is a real drummer, but it sounds like drum machine mostly. Um, and again, an acoustic guitar sometimes, but vocoded vocals, like heavily processed. Mm-hmm. And, and like you would probably Frampton vocoder kind of stuff. Uh, dirtier, uh-huh. dirtier. Um, and really warped lyrics. I think you would really dig this yeah. because their music sounds so sunshiny, but mm-hmm. the lyrics will be just about like an apple dripping honey into a dead bee or something mm. like that. And, uh, it, I so like it's that, that kind of juxtaposition. Yeah, yeah, it's that juxtaposition that was so great about pop when, like, you got Velvet Underground, Velvet Underground song. It's like so upbeat, but the yeah. lyrics are so dark. Yeah. So it's definitely coming from that kind of angle on it. And um, weird production. Mm-hmm. It's not for Black Moth, and it's also not perfect every time. But they did. I think Eating Us is, might be the most produced record they did, um, which is. But you could start anywhere. With so them. are you are you doing elect yeah electronic what yeah. is your project called? I'm doing that um that's E and E just E&E. the letters and um been doing that what for was a the long second time. part you said E oh it's just the letters it oh, doesn't okay. like really have another way to say it no like I'm electronic music to me it, you know it's it started off being specific but I think it's a very a broad thing now and like you could be like boards of Canada I think of as analog electronic mm-hmm. like they're working more in well they certainly want to come off that way yeah so we don't really know be. what they're doing right but um i i think there's a lot of truth to what they they claim they do and um really processing the sounds and mm-hmm. like whether it's like putting on a vhs tape and then sampling that or something mm-hmm. i'm sure they do a lot well, you of hear stuff some like major that. surface noise from some records yeah using and it adds a lot yeah. of character yeah yeah I, you know, I was sort of, I mean, I was this strangely, um, dogmatic about music for a little while. That, I think everyone is to yeah, a point. Yeah. And yeah. go through phases with it. Yeah. That I felt like all music had to be played by two or more human beings mm-hmm. as a band. Otherwise that individual was controlling too much and there was too much about control. Like that was my problem with it for a long time. But then if you really like trust the person, the maestro, Mm-hmm. And you let them take you on a, you know, a sonic trip. Then I mean, they're yeah, they're controlling a lot of things. There are a lot of samples being used, or computers involved, and all of that kind of stuff. But there's still a degree of mastery necessary. I mean, what made it, yeah. int- you know, it what made fair. it interesting to me is the possibility for failure in rock and roll. Is like that you could get a bunch of people up on stage yeah. and they could blow it. You know, <laughs> so like the tension of when people do accomplish that well is really cool to me. But it seems like there's less room for that in the electronic you know i there's probably two things one in the professional world of music so much is controlled now there's yeah. like so there's no deviation from the set list there's you know it's it, 
you're kind of like it's McDonald's at that point. It's the same mm-hmm. cheeseburger everywhere you yeah. go, everywhere that tour goes. And that's no discredit to anyone or judgment. It's just how it's done right. because it works and it right. has to be makes efficient. people money. It makes people money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. But I think you and I, like the Richmond, the, the old Richmond shows were like, you could go to an anal cunt show and you know it's going to be con- confrontational, but you don't know how confrontational mm-hmm. it's going to be. And like that sense of danger is a little bit missed from rock and roll i think but also it's it's not <laughs> obvious in electronic music mm-hmm. either so um but i think certain there's certain but artists. those guys like alan vega like the suicide oh yeah they knew you would walk in they to knew. them doing something scary and crazy in a gallery yeah and it could go anywhere like the <laughs> yeah. you know that same riff could be played for any amount mm-hmm. depending on what the situation was and and that's just that's what it's all about well one of the people that have contributed financially to this podcast basically doesn't believe in podcasts but he believes in me uh-huh. and and Good. he said but i want you to get out and do stuff and go places and see shows and interact with people i don't want this you know the, too much reliance on the uh the uh digital and electronic thing mm-hmm. and and i have been doing that and, I, and that's the thing that i really would say is that was the really cool thing about being a vcu student in the 90s was this you somebody says like Charlie O'Donovan sitting in Schaefer Court on Friday with of a course. list of parties Under where the there's Magnolia going to be free tree. beer. Yeah. yeah. And and so you would go on like on this scavenger hunt and like walk into something in Oregon Hill or in a warehouse above Richmond Camera or whatever, and it's like this completely different we've walked into some kind of fucking Narnia or yeah. whatever. You've gone mm-hmm. through a door and you're in a completely different environment. And nobody could tell from the outside, and it had to be that way. Otherwise, somebody would have complained or shut it down. Right. So you would just go. It was almost the speakeasy thing that you know. When you walk through the store, you go. You go through the looking glass. You go through a portal, and blam, you're in this thing. And, and you don't know the rules. There's yeah. no protocol whatsoever. And but it's basically safe. It is basically, <laughs> but challenging and exciting. Yeah, I think. Um, oh yeah. It's, well, now. I mean, I sound a little bit like I'm lamenting mm-hmm. the, the passing of something, but it's not true. But you, you, things are much more predictable mm-hmm. um, in society and safety at large. Post nine eleven has has made it to where, like, yeah, we want things to have a certain amount of order so that right. nobody can fuck things up for a large amount of people. Right. And um, well, fear gives over to control, and there's. Yeah. Something someone said that you know people who sacrifice freedom for security deserve neither. Re- yes. You know? <laughs> yeah. I don't remember who said that, but it's. Did you spend yeah. much time in D.C. like going to shows or anything? Up I, there? Just now and then, I went up to nine thirty yeah. club or something and what, saw something. What are your memories of like D.C. being like? I remember D.C. being all the bad without the good of a uh-huh. major metropolitan area. Yeah. Like it just seemed like unnecessarily chaotically like fucked up and lame. Uh, Whereas, like, if it's if that's happening in New York, there's some upside to it, right? You know? There's <laughs> yes, yeah, at the same time, it was just harder. To just, it was harder to see in DC. Yeah, and the reason I asked because I was there this past weekend, and it was great because I was just visiting friends and going to a show, but I didn't have to play a show, mm-hmm. and I got to kind of experience the street part of DC and the audience part, and it's so, it's, it's clean. They've yeah, cleaned it up. There's like no crazy random dude that looks like a zombie walking down the street no right. more like at all like and everybody's kind of beautiful and well-dressed even mm-hmm. if it's casual like, 
it's it's totally different. That's um, cool. Well, I think the cats are really trying to get my attention, and my bladder is is going okay. off. So <laughs> this is that uh, I got to piss like a motherfucker point right. where we wrap it up. So thanks, man, for coming over and uh, talking, and it's been a great great trip through a whole other sub yeah. genre of Richmond music. And thanks I- for having me. I really. There you have it. Scott Hutchins. Cool guy. Check out his latest project, E&E. It's kind of an electronic thing. He mentioned that. I don't know why I'm repeating that. You just heard it. See, for me, it was a week ago. So, you know, I'm uh, lost in a time loop, in a tangent universe. It's Halloween times, and I kicked off my... uh, Halloween times by watching Donnie Darko, which um, was really cool to watch now. Um, so fascinated am I with time travel and paradoxes and things like that. But I was also paying a lot more attention to what's going on. I watched director's cuts, that, that helps. And uh, I don't know if you realize this, but you know, the whole, the whole, Story is taking place in a tangent universe. It's a little, um, a little loop, uh, a time, or time diversion, and it has to rejoin normal time. But like, in order for that to happen, a paradox has to take place, and Donnie has to play the role of the agent that makes that happen. And I thought that was really cool. That was a really well thought out movie. I've never, I don't know. I mean, obviously, it was uh, time travel stories should always have this like thing that at the end to make your brain hurt and you gotta think about it and wonder how the fuck things that you know linear things can be linear and not linear at the same time but you know the paradox exists so much in in science fiction and previously in the greek tragedies that you know you you begin to wonder if it isn't getting at some deeper level of reality that shit ain't linear that it's somehow strangely cyclical Um, and, you know, chicken and the egg is irrelevant. It's both. But, uh, you know, it's been with us since Oedipus Rex. What happened? You know, the Oracle showed up and told people that their kid was going to grow up and kill them, fuck the mom, and they said, well, we won't have that. And they put him out in the woods, and then he didn't die, and he grew up, and he came back, and he did exactly what the Oracle said he was going to do. And, of course, the story is you can't fuck with fate. But I think there's something else there. I'll leave you to think about that, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch another scary movie tonight. <laughs> Boo.